0: Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today on the programme, we're meeting two of the more recently appointed thought leaders and innovators that UBS supports and celebrates through its Global Visionaries programme. It's the turn today of Chris Besnecker and Jennifer Wagerman of AfriScout. AfriScout's mission is to address the enormous challenges faced by pastoralists, nomadic and semi-nomadic livestock herders across Africa, who collectively lose a third of their herds each year due to an inability to find adequate pasture or water, a problem that's been exacerbated by climate change. AfriScout is a digital grazing management service, providing those pastoralists with near-real-time visual data on rangeland conditions using satellite imagery and mobile technology. It's leveraged their local insights, cultural practices, languages and contextual knowledge of grazing areas. And as June the 5th is UN World Environment Day, we thought it would be an apposite moment to check in with Chris and Jen to find out more about the background to AfriScout and why the work they're doing is so vital. Jen's the co-founder and managing director of AfriScout based in Nairobi. Chris is a founder of AfriScout and also senior director for innovation at non-profit development organisation Global Communities. Chris is usually based in San Diego, but joins us today from Washington DC. Chris, Jennifer, a very warm welcome to you both. Uh, Thanks for joining us and from across several time zones indeed today. Let's start. It's a fairly unoriginal jumping off point, I guess, but I think when we're talking about AfroScout, it's important to do this. A bit of the origin story, if you will. Can you, and maybe I'll get a bit, bit both of you to sort of uh, chip in on this one. I, I know that it's, a, in some ways, it's a, a, a tragic story, really, but maybe you can just tell us a bit about how the vision for AfroScout originally came about.
1: Yeah, well, as you noted, the idea for AfroScout really began amidst the, this strategy, and 2006, the Horn of Africa was experiencing the severe drought and it led to catastrophic failure of crops and 60% of livestock died. And this put several countries at the risk of famine. The international nonprofit uh, that I work for, which is called Global Communities, sent me to Ethiopia to evaluate how we could best respond to this crisis. And while I was driving along this remote stretch of road in the Somali region, I I came across this young family and their small herd of goats and sheep. I was interested to know why they were there, so I stopped and asked them and they told me that they had traveled for 14 days to that very location that I met them, based on word of mouth that there was pasture there. Now the landscape was barren and their small emaciated herd were going to die. And that herd represented the entirety of their savings and and wealth. And it was really this tragedy that gave birth to the idea of AfrScout. I realized that if we could provide pastoralists with better data on vegetation conditions, then they can make more informed decisions on critical migration movements and avoid the kind of tragedies like the one I witnessed.
2: At that point, that's when I, I met Chris. And we collectively embarked on this research and discovery process where we were eventually landed on AfroScout, which is now a digital service that is providing pastoralists across East Africa with near real-time visual data on their rangeland conditions using satellite imagery and mobile technology. And we've now been able to reach over 25,000 pastoralists and their family using this AfroScout app
0: yeah it's amazing and that's obviously such a sort of an emotional story i guess to f- to flesh that out a little more and jen maybe you can pick up on this although you know chris obviously spoken there very powerfully about this this moment this site that he that he saw and how that began his journey what is the scale though can you put some numbers on it because i think sometimes for these very urgent challenges of great scale in some ways the numbers, they're, they're too vast that you almost can't get your head around them. But I think we should try. Give us some reflections on the nature of the challenge that is out there right now.
2: Yeah, I think pastoralism is a term we'll keep referring to. And what we mean by that is really these semi-nomadic livestock herders like the one Chris met, who are responsible for stewarding these really large, arid landscapes across Africa, which represent about 42% of the land mass. and there's approximately a quarter of a billion pastoralists across the the continent. And so they're they're quite significant in numbers and also in their impact. In many cases, their livestock production makes up 10 to 30% of the GDP and and several sort of pastoral dominant countries. But what we discovered was that the traditional information sources that they're using uh, to make decisions about where to move their animals for pasture and water, have become really unreliable, leading to significant herd losses. And things like unpredictable weather patterns due to climate change and poor land management has only amplified this challenge that they face. So seasonal predictions of, you know, rain and migration really has shifted. So maybe they always used to migrate during when it became wet season starting in April. Now that's become erratic, and so this challenge that they face is really trying to discover or learn how to cope and adapt to be able to find regular pasture and water. However, what we're finding is that in an average year, pastoralists are losing roughly a third of their herd, and this is primarily due to their inability to find adequate pasture and water
1: the famine that was experienced in ethiopia in the in the 80s created about 3 million deaths really propelled this this what i call the apparatus the response apparatus which is has really focused on preventing famine and and, uh, you know to its credit it's it's done that but what it is, what that apparatus does is it, it triggers early warning, which really isn't that early. It, it's really well into the crisis before it gets triggered. And the response is generally food aid. So, once a, a drought that has been prolonged gets to the point where people are losing massive amounts of livestock, an emergency is triggered, emergency response is triggered, and the provision of food aid is delivered. And the efficiencies in delivering that food aid has improved over the years, but it's still after the fact, and it's still after people have lost much of their their livestock and much of their wealth. And the response really amounts to about six months of food aid, which in no way compensates them for that, that productive asset that they've lost.
2: And aside from just humanitarian assistance in, in times of crisis, the standard development approach in a lot of these areas including by foreign agencies and local government is often trying to either transition people out of pastoralism because it's such a fragile livelihood and pushing for industrialization of livestock which is really not solving the root cause of the problem which is poor ecological management and so what, what happens is this push for sedentary livestock production poses land use threats to biodiversity and these grassland ecosystems, which also support um, the continent's most important wildlife.
0: Well, yeah, so then explain to us, Chris, maybe bouncing back to you, how did what you began to propose, how was that greeted against the backdrop you've both painted for us? And tell us about... I don't know, maybe some successes quite early that made you realise and gave you confidence once you got going, that actually, you were onto something and that there was an alternative to that post hoc uh, solutions that had for so long dominated the, the the landscape here.
1: Well, you know, when I first started talking about this idea of taking visual data from satellites and sharing it with some of the most remote populations on the planet, I I got a lot of reactions of disbelief and it won't work. And, you know, the conventional wisdom at that time was that if pastoralists can find pastures, it's because it didn't exist. And even if you did provide that information, they don't read maps. They're illiterate and they reject uh, sort of modern methods. That was the sort of the prevailing opinion. And so I would take this idea and, and presented it multiple times to uh, different funding agencies and and i got turned down multiple times but then finally the us agency for international development which had started this new project called development innovations ventures which was sort of set up to test untested ideas they were interested as was uh, google.org and so we were able to test our theory first using paper-based maps and then later with the app and our first pilot which was in northern ethiopia uh, indeed proved that pastoralists wanted this information and in that they would read the maps and they reported a reduction in her mortality by almost half. So it was a pretty surprising to, to even to ourselves, but to many others. And that's, this really spurned some interest in, in what we were doing. So we expanded our reach and our study to include thousands of Maasai herders in Northern Tanzania. And after two years of use, 76% of pastoralists identified these maps as their most important resource for migration decisions. Animal body condition significantly improved among the users when compared to non users. And that had an attributable benefit of about $4,600 per household. So it was pretty significant impact that we were seeing. But in addition, about 42% of those pastoralists believe that the app was actually reducing conflict. And nearly 70% said it helped them to better manage their pasture. And it's that last point where things really start to get interesting. And and maybe I'll let Jen share some of the direction that we're going now.
2: I think it's helpful to think of pastoralists as grass farmers. Effectively managed, their livestock can actually help regenerate grass and in doing so, sink carbon. The International Union for Conservation of Nature has actually stated improved range on management which includes this sustainable pasture management through herd mobility or rotational grazing is one of the most cost-effective climate change mitigation options there is. This may seem counterintuitive to, to many people given how closely the public views livestock as a major carbon contributor, but the truth is the, the challenge with, with livestock farming is more about the industrialization. And in these areas that we work, hoofing and and large herds of animals is actually essential to regenerating landscapes. So think of it this way. If you bring a large herd of animals to an area, these these vast sort of grasslands, their hoofs help help the soil to hold water, they trample ground cover, and then their manure actually reseeds and fertilizes soil. So ecologically, it's promoting microorganism growth, which then attracts birds and wildlife, and so it's a, it's a whole ecosystem and livestock and sort of pastoralism as it is rotational grazing of livestock actually has this, this potential to improve and recover some of these degrading landscapes. And so AfroScout really helps to restore and elevate a pastoralist capacity for good management. And that would look like minimizing grazing in areas where grass needs time to recover, and moving herds to places where the thinning, hoofing, and fertilization actually improve regeneration. And furthermore, it's it's reducing someone's reliance on supplementary feed. So in, in industrial livestock farming, you'll actually find that half of the livestock related emissions are in this supplementary feed, animal feed. And so understanding these dynamics, we really wanted to go further now to leverage advanced technologies like artificial intelligence to better support those daily herd management decisions that can promote regeneration. And another sort of thing that we're embarking on then is working with one of the world's largest carbon developers to actually use AfroScout to accelerate the regeneration of grasslands and then create revenue from carbon offsets, which will provide additional monetary dividends to the communities who are doing this work and help us sustain and scale AfroScout to more communities. So if successful, this is going to be one of the largest grassland carbon offset projects in the world, as well as one of the largest examples of regenerative grazing.
0: Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. And it strikes me as interesting that maybe, you know, you've sort of learned more about the potential as you've gone. It wasn't all things that you maybe had front of mind at the at the outset and you've only beginning to realise its power as it goes, which maybe we can talk a bit more more about that. Chris, let me ask you about support from without. Obviously, we're talking to you guys as global visionaries. That's a recognition from, from UBS. And presumably that kind of support recognition enables you to meet more people and potentially talk to other stakeholders. And that's part of the process, I guess, of, of, of scaling and growing. But are there any secrets other than just making sure you run a very broad church and you talk to as many people as you can? Are there secrets to successfully galvanizing stakeholders? Because you mentioned a moment ago that there was some skepticism at the beginning.
1: Yeah, you're right. And, and I think you alluded to it. I think our original purpose in this process was to help pastoralist, you know, avert tragedy and that was our primary focus but the more that we learned and the more research that we did on what it was actually doing discovered many different sort of ancillary benefits to using this this technology and this application and in fact Afrascat is really a, a unique in that it's it's a nexus for so many different uh stakeholder interests so you have those who are simply interested in reducing poverty and improving the livelihoods of the poor uh, there are others who are interested in sustainable agriculture and, and livestock systems. And there are those like UBS who are keenly interested in climate action and finding new solutions to solving the climate crisis. And we've actually found that all of these different types of stakeholders have, have discovered this intrinsic value in AfroScout because it, it's a touch point for so many of those different interests and, uh, you know, their view of progress and advancement for global development in AfroScout can play a small role in, the, in in their respective missions.
0: Well, yeah. And, and Jen, do you think that's true that actually because of the work that you guys have done and the successes you've already enjoyed, Maybe one of the advantages is that it helps all of these different parties to realize that their ambitions actually do align. Although maybe at first glance they may seem not to complement one another, or indeed to even be in opposition to one another. Actually, these things that overlay each other more more elegantly that must give you a lot of satisfaction. If well, if you if you agree with that reading,
2: yeah, I think as kind of speaking to your point earlier on how we have made discoveries along the way and adapted on along the way. I like to to say that we've shifted our focus to go beyond just climate change adaptation which was that origin story to now promoting climate change mitigation and to actually mitigate the effects of climate change I think we're realizing it is a it is a nexus uh solution you need communities involved in the change you need biodiversity which requires you know many different stakeholders and so trying to To sort of reverse the effects of poor management does require lots of different technical specialties and approaches that complement each other.
0: Well, now, even given that backdrop, I guess, you know, you've already spoken about the scale of the challenge and clearly we're only just starting to address it. What more needs to be done? And perhaps as a sort of corollary point, by whom because we keep talking about all of these other people who have interests and who have the capacity or the power to try and shape or reshape the the, the landscape chris maybe i'll put that to you what what more does need to happen and who and to whom should we be looking to, to see that progress
1: you know i think it's clear that the climate crisis is going to be a dominant a dominant focus of this decade and our response to it over the course of the next 10 years will have critical ramifications for for the future. What's interesting and and with good justification, the story of climate change is focused on the industrialized nations being sort of the primary source of increased atmospheric carbon and the poor nations being vulnerable to its effects. And as a consequence, you know, the way that we view these poor countries has been on uh, what do we need to do to help them adapt and cope with the severe changes occurring, like our pastoralists. But what if they weren't simply the victims that needed our aid? What if they could actually be the heroes of this story, if by using technology together with the traditional practices, that they not only adapted to climate change, but also helped to solve it by using their animals to grow grass and bring back biodiversity. I think we need to change our mindset about what the role of these vulnerable communities are in addressing the climate crisis. Uh, That would be an amazing story. And I think what we need is more people to help us tell that story, like you, and invest in solutions like AfriScout that can help them solve the problem.
0: Chris Besnecker and Jennifer Wagerman of AfriScout. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda every week here on Monocle 24. You can find out more about the work of Chris and Jennifer and their colleagues in this fantastic mission. Visit ubs.com now and search AfriScout. There's also lots more information at globalcommunities.org forward slash innovation. And for more about all the global visionaries in the UBS programme, head to ubs.com and search Global Visionaries. In the meantime, you can listen again to this and every episode, including our archive of other brilliant visionaries at monocle.com and across all good audio and podcast platforms. The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24.